Hello, and welcome to Deep Program with Carrie Smith. Today is Thursday, March 17th, and I'm very excited about my guest today. I'm going to be speaking with Jeff Whiskerchen, who's a marriage and family therapist, a national certified counselor, and the founder and CEO of Zephyr Wellness. Please welcome Jake. Hi. Let's see if I can do this. No. Let's see. There you go. Welcome. Hey, before we get into any any serious topics, I just wanted to ask you about the etymology of your last name, Whiskerchen, because I know where Smith comes from, blacksmith, right, whitesmiths. Mm -hmm. Where does Whiskerchen come from? Uh, so pronunciation, as we say it uh, here, is Whiskerchen. Oh, uh, gosh. Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, we didn't go over that. Um, and I don't, I, I find myself doing that too with, with the podcast I host and it makes me a bad host. So obviously you're a bad host too for not yep. asking. That. Um, but it, we, we think the original pronunciation in the mother tongue in German is Wieskirchen and Weiss is white and then Kirchen is church. So it's like white church. And there's a, there's a Wieskirchen or Weisskirchen, uh region or um, I don't know, municipality, hamlet of some sort in somewhere in Germany. And I've looked it up and there's a small Wikipedia page about it. I would like to go visit, but my uh, German last name uh, is, is a little bit misleading because I'm actually way more Italian than I am German, which is why I like talk with my hands a lot and gesticulate and yeah. all sorts of fashions. Cause my mom's entire side is hundred percent Italian and I was raised more around them than my dad's parents. So I eat a lot of garlic and olive oil and uh, I talk with my hands and um, you know, all sorts of Italian. So things. not as German. How do you pronounce uh, it one more time? Wiskirchen. Wiskirchen. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm not going to die on that hill necessarily because I only know what my parents taught me. So. So I was I was wondering because I thought it was Wiskirchen. I thought it had to do with beards. Yeah, <laughs> not to my knowledge. Um, okay. I am clean shaven today. Usually, I have some sort of a five o'clock shadow because that's what my wife likes. Nice. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording and I said, we just need to start recording because you're saying so many interesting things. Um, I wanted to speak with you because I saw you uh, interacting with Josh Slocum, who mm -hmm. I've talked with quite a bit. And my background, this show is sort of a, a deep dive into social justice ideology, which was my belief system for 20 years. And mm -hmm. so I've been trying to do interviews with different people to help help me understand it better like what it was that I was in versus what it says it is and also help other people who are watching understand it a little better. And you're interesting to me because you're a marriage and family therapist. And so I think you could have some insight into some of the emotional um, forces behind people staying in woke. And so would you mind just telling people a little bit about what you do um, who you are, and then we can jump into that that question. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, <clears throat> I'm not I'm not real big on verbal resumes because uh, I, I think whatever information comes from my mouth should stand on its own, irrespective of postnominal letters or credentials. But um, I think it is important and and worthwhile to explore how I got to where I am. So a marriage and family therapist is the license under which I practice and bill insurance and stuff like that. So uh, to understand that, it's basically talk therapy. We do, we do outpatient counseling. And, uh, the company that I, I own here in Northern Nevada is called Zephyr wellness. And we employ about 27 people right now. And, um, 
16, 17 of those, 18 of those are uh, licensed practicing clinicians. Um, so, so we do, we do basically that one thing we do counseling, but behind that, we have a series of, of, um, systemic approaches to viewing people's lives and their, and their families and how they interact with the world and how the systems interplay. So that becomes very useful when analyzing pretty much anything. And once you start to view the world in a, through a systemic lens, you can't see it any other way. So we don't, we don't look at people in a vacuum, like they're standing isolated on their own. We, we can't help but see how they're touched by all the other forces in their lives. Now, behind even that are a series of theories and theoretical modalities. So, you, you know, some of the listening audience may have heard of things like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy or existentialism or psychoanalysis or uh, yield theory, choice theory, reality therapy, all these things, right? And they're all approaches to help people make change in their lives. And so that's what we do. And my particular bailiwick is a uh, foundation of emotional functioning. And I studied this for quite some time. A lot of what I draw from comes from a guy named Carol Izzard. Uh, it's uh, I-Z-A-R-D. And he's, uh, he's dead now, but he, he worked for like 50 years studying emotional functioning and collecting other people's research and compiling it. And so um, I have a series of videos on, on our Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel that talk about the 10 core emotions that we all have per Izzard's work and how they're neither good nor bad. They're simply informative. And if we understand what our emotions do in our brains, we understand what that natural, normal, evolutionarily necessary biological response to environment is when things happen in the environment. Then what we do is we get better control over how we respond to those things. So we're not doing things out of reflex or, or simple ideology. And then speaking of ideology, another major influence on my life is uh, Carl Jung, who's a big name in our field, and he wrote tons and tons of stuff. He studied with Sigmund Freud back in the day, and, and he died in like 1961, but his work uh, still lives on. It's very, very impactful. And what Jung studied was this idea of conscious and unconscious function. What are we aware of that drives our behavior? And then what are we not aware of, which is much greater than what we're aware of? And how does that drive our behavior? So emotions, conscious function, unconscious function, the, the decisions we make, how aware we are uh, in the role that we play in our lives, all that stuff folds into how we talk to people, interact with them. And then what I do is, as, you know, as a, a career is to help people become more aware so that they can have better control over how they respond to certain circumstances. So that's, that's kind of the foundation of it. I love talking about these philosophical concepts like wokeism and, you know, alt-right. And uh, for me, it all comes down to how people interact with the world, why they do what they do, what are the forces behind those choices and decisions, and um, putting them back in charge of, of what they do so that they're not, again, like I said, you know, reflexively responding, uh, emotionally responding, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You have a video in your series on the different emotions. There's one I was watching where you talk about, you're giving people tips on how to talk to someone who's in an emotional state could you share some of that? Yeah. So, um, simply put, you, your brain your brain does a lot, and um, so does mine. I hope. <laughs> but uh, so, in our brains, uh, we we've got the a, a lot going on uh, that regulates certain systems of our body and whatnot. But I focus on two major uh, sections. One is uh, feeling, and one is thinking. So, uh, if you're watching on video, you can see me point to like right 
in front of my ear it's like the middle part of my my brain and then i draw a line down to the to the rear portion of the brain stem that's that's sort of where our our emotional center is it's called the limbic system and in the limbic system we have a series of glands that excrete chemicals you got the, the thalamus and the hypothalamus and the hippocampus and the uh um, you know the amygdala and all sorts of things so those all perform a function and what happens is when we're interacting in our environments um the environments are constantly throwing stimuli at our brains and we're intaking this stuff and the limbic system tells us based on a series of emotions what to do in response to those stimuli the cognitive part the frontal lobe and if you can see me uh on the video i'm pointing to my to the frontal part of my brain here like like a my forehead um, that part is responsible for our thinking, our logic, analysis, or otherwise known as executive functioning. Now, those two systems don't work together. They, they go back and forth real fast, but they, but they don't work at the same time. So you can't be in a thinking state and a feeling state simultaneously. So being aware of that, if somebody's in an emotional state, what you want to do is meet them in that emotional state. Now, I don't mean you make yourself emotional. What you do is you acknowledge it and you do something called validation, meaning you, you acknowledge their emotions as being real. And what that does is it tells the brain, okay, I'm, I'm being understood. I'm being heard. I'm being listened to. The limbic system then drains and the prefrontal cortex of the frontal lobe can take over. Now we can, now we can have a reasonable logical discussion once we're out of an emotional state. And, and uh, there's three basic steps to this that comes from a guy's work named uh, Christian Conti. Uh, Conti's a big influence on my life too. He's a friend and a mentor and he wrote a, an amazing book on his uh, yield theory. It's called Walking Through Anger. So if you want to pick that up, it's like 18 bucks on Amazon. C-O-N-T-E is how you spell his last name. But uh, yield theory essentially boils down to three things. Listen, validate, explore options. So if you're listening to somebody and they're in an emotional state and they're they're angry or they're sad or or they're, they're screaming and you can't tell what they're in, what you do is you just be patient. You listen, you listen, you listen. And then through validation, which is the second step, you go, I hear you. It sounds to me like you're really, you know, take a guess, fill in the blank of what they're feeling. Right. If you're wrong, they'll correct you. And then once they, they go, yeah, oh, thank you for hearing me. Now you can explore options. The explore option state comes from the frontal lobe. And you can't get there if somebody's in an emotional state. And to illustrate this, you think about the last time you had a really knock down, drag out argument with somebody. Um, where you're screaming at each other, <laughs> reason usually doesn't penetrate. It's because the yeah. wrong part of the brain is working. Same thing with you know fights and bars and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that is definitely even my experience. You're also making me think of a study I read years ago, a, a neuroscience, which has shown that if a person, or it said anyway, from from what I recall, that if a person, even to themselves, maybe they're not in an interaction with someone else, but if they're feeling a strong emotion if they themselves acknowledge that emotion and validate it and maybe even say it out loud, like I'm so angry yep. that that helps to reduce it. The minute yep. you, you, you can self validate the, the, the trick though. And this is why emotional functioning is so important to me is it has to be precise. You can't, you can't be imprecise or vague with your validations. Otherwise it won't work. So I mentioned earlier, there's 10 core emotions that Izzard studied and, um, and I won't list them all out here, but, but, among them are not things like jealousy, envy, overwhelmed, frustrated, because those things are either hybrids of emotions or hybrids of emotions and thoughts. 
or they're just altogether thoughts or perceptions, something that comes from the frontal lobe, for example. So like overwhelmed is not an emotion. Overwhelmed is a perception. That's, that's an understanding of what's going on. And your belief system says you can't do it. It's too much, whatever. Right? So if I say I'm overwhelmed, it doesn't satisfy the limbic need for validation because I don't know what overwhelmed means. It could mean I'm scared. It could mean I'm, I'm ashamed or embarrassed. That's another one of our core emotions because I believed that I should be able to handle this, right? There's a should operating in there. Um, and now I can't. So like, it depends on what the emotion is. Overwhelmed won't, won't get me to validation. It won't drain the limbic system to start exploring options. And I think the mistake a lot of people make when they're trying to work with people who are in an emotional state is that we jump right to option exploration rather than just sifting through the feelings first. And once we do that, then we can, we can move forward. But when you're throwing solutions at people, they tend to get rejected because they're not in a state to even absorb them. But that's not what they need there anyway. What, what they need right then and there is to be heard and understood first. So um, I see this a lot. And for example, when we're running groups, we're in a process group, six or eight, 10 people in the room. And, um, you know, somebody's telling a story, they start getting tearful. And almost invariably, somebody's hand will come out and, you know, set it on the thigh and go, they're there, you know, or somebody else will leap to solutions like, have you hired an attorney or, you know, did you, did you send them to jail? It's like, they're not looking for solutions. What they're looking for in that moment is to, to say, man, that really sucks. Yeah. Right. And just sit in the suck for a while. And here's the crazy thing. More often it's the solution oriented uh, focus from the other members of the group is not about actually helping the person who's in distress. It's about alleviating their own distress, watching them distress right? So um, we have to be able to self-validate so that we can tolerate other people's distress. And this is crucial for parenting. For example, when kids are, you know, freaking out over whatever they're freaking out on, if the parents themselves don't know how to, to tolerate their own distress, they're not going to be able to sit in their kid's distress and walk them through it. So we mm -hmm. parents have a job to do first, which is know ourselves well enough to shepherd our children through their own problems in life. Yeah, Obviously, I love the stuff I could talk about forever. Yeah, you're making me think of this comedy video now that did you ever see? It, it was sort of breaking down. It, it, it was about the difference between men and women and in the, in the video was saying women more often than men, I guess, want to have that emotion validated rather than to hear you offer solutions right away. And it was the video where the woman has the nail in her head. Not about the that? nail. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I signed it to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you could take the nail out of your head. She's like, it's yep. not about the nail. <laughs> brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, just, just Google search. It's not about the nail video and it'll pop right up. It's, it's like two minutes long. It's so, so good. It's so good. <laughs> That that video, I I can understand why you send it to people because it helps to explain. It's like, no, you just need to hear yeah. me express what this emotion is first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has. I mean, this isn't this isn't like you know psychological woo woo. This is neurologically demonstrated in multiple studies and fMRI imaging and and so forth. It's like when you when you validate somebody's emotional state, you can actually see on on imaging live real time. A neurological change where the limbic system calms down and that's that's when you can move forward and right? um so yeah, it doesn't do any good to scream at people with your opinions they're not going to hear it yeah. so one of the things we were talking about before we started recording i was telling you a little about my background and 
the fact that I was in the social justice ideology or belief system for about two decades, and I was telling you that I think this is true probably for a lot of people who are in that ideology, is that there's this background level of anxiety. Now, that anxiety, does that count as an emotion, or is there something underneath that that's like fear? Yeah. Probably. Um, so the, the way I teach this, again, this uh, I, I steal this from uh, from Christian Conti. Um, so I'll build uh, I'll build some context and then I'll I'll answer your question. So, um, generically speaking, when we talk in terms of just what what's generally applicable to most people, when we think about anxiety, the concept of anxiety, it's when we fixate our thoughts. So thoughts come from the frontal lobe again, right? This is our this is what we do have control over. We can't necessarily control whether or not we feel something, but we can control how much and how long we feel it with our thinking. We can also direct our attention, our thoughts onto something and then feel something from that that thing that we're looking at so if i direct my attention i have a little uh, uh poster in my room of a, a baby like wolf chewing on a little grass reed and it's adorable um he's like he's got his eyes squinted and it's really cute so if i direct my attention yeah, like if you're listening to this and you're imagining a little baby wolf chewing on a little grass reed you you can probably imagine it's cute and you have happy chemicals flowing through your head okay well you just controlled your own emotions you directed your attention to something pleasant Similarly, you can direct your attention to something unpleasant and feel the same thing, right? You can feel sadness or you can feel shame or whatever. Um, if you're doom scrolling Twitter far too often, you're going to intake those those negative emotions that come with the thoughts um, and you're going to have a, a negative experience, right? So here's the thing. Anxiety is when we fixate our thoughts on something, generically speaking, it's in the future and we can't do anything about it. So we have a worry. We have a concern because we can't do anything about it because it's not here yet. Now, flip that around. Depression, then, is when we fixate our thoughts on something in the past that we also can't do anything about because it's, it's dead and gone. And then we end up with a with a with like a sadness attached to that, usually. Sometimes it's a shame or a guilt. So the key there is to fixate. Now, I'm not saying that we all just like throw caution to the wind and become hippies and we're like, whatever happens, happens, man. I don't care about anything. We don't become nihilists. Um, we want to be mindfully reflecting on the past. We want to reflect on our mistakes so that we can correct them and move forward. We want to reflect on our successes and repeat them. We don't want to dwell there, right? Uh, you think about people who live, you can't, can't move past their glory days of high school or something. That's just as unhealthy, right? They're fixated on the past. Um, and we want to be mindfully planning for the future. We want to look toward things that are coming down the pipe so that we can adequately prepare for them, like a test. We want to study for the test. We don't want to get rid of all anxiety. That would be foolish. Anxiety helps to motivate us to do certain things like plan for retirement. We just don't want to live there either. So how do we combat that? We live in the present. And in the present moment, we can, we can have control over where we direct our attention, mindfully planning for the future, mindfully reflecting on the past, but ultimately living in the present. And here's a real kicker. If you're not in the present and you're stuck in either the past or the future, you're missing the present. And then you get, ironically, more reason to be anxious or depressed because you just missed you know, being with your wife or attending to your kid's baseball game because you're too busy with email on your phone or whatever it is, right? And then you're kicking yourself later. So we want to try to be as present as possible um, while still mindfully reflecting and anticipating things. So you asked about anxiety. Is anxiety an emotion? In and of itself, it is not an emotion. It's a, it's a, it's a mood. It's a state of being. But the emotions behind anxiety can be fear. Usually it's fear. Um, fear can take lots of forms. 
Uh, lack of ability to control can certainly be scary. Uncertainty can be scary. Lack of predictability can be scary, all because we don't we don't have any control over it, right? Um, and I think that particular type of fear plagues a lot of Westerners. And I say Westerners because in the in the West, in the Occident, if you will, um, we've been driven so much by science and medicine and technology that it's given us this meta message of needing to be in charge, needing predictability, needing blueprints, needing guarantees to give us a sense of confidence and security when truly we don't. We All we have is knowledge and knowledge sometimes acts as a proxy for for safety and security but but really if you if you go more toward the the east the near east or the um the far east their way their cultures are way more apt to letting things just be rather than trying to figure them out uh the west has been really good at trying to figure things out um and so i think as as a result that's that's bogged us down and created this false sense of needing to know things all the time, which then begets anxiety because you can't know things all the time. So fear sometimes is at the root of anxiety. Sometimes it's excitement. You're overly excited about something, um, but still it has yet to occur. So you can be apprehensive. So that that's, that's the answer to the question. Anxiety in itself is not an emotion, but, but it's full of other emotions. Excuse me from coughing. I have a, I have a cold. Yeah. Just a cold. So, the, my question about then you're, you're causing me to think about uh, about what I'm trying to describe for people who are in my old belief system. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, I think, a, a kind of anxiety that people have because what ends up happening is that I think you're you have this fear of uncertainty about the future because deep within you, even if you're not cognizant of it, you know that your belief system is on resting on sand. Yeah, it's, it's there's no there's no solid foundation, and yep. uh, part of that has to do with what we were talking about before about uh, before the the recording started, which is about how social justice is kind of I view it as this marriage between Marxism and postmodernism, and so you've got this this belief system where definitions are constantly changing, what's what you're allowed to say is constantly changing, and a lot of people yep. in that belief system they have almost an internal sensor in their head. I had an internal social justice person in my head where everything I uttered, every word, everything I put online, I would run it through that sensor first to make sure I wasn't unintentionally causing offense by tripping over Which one of exhausting, the... By the way. Yes, it's exhausting. Yep. And so I think that causes this, this, this sort of uh, background level of that fear and anxiety and mm-hmm. maybe not being able to recognize what it is, but being in this sort of, uh, unpleasant state for most of the time. Yeah. It's, um, we're, we're diving into some concepts here that I think are really important to explore that are fundamental to my field. So one of them is non-attachment. Non-attachment sounds like the thing I just said you shouldn't be doing, which is nihilism. That's not it. You can be non-attached to things and still be very passionate. Now, it's a little bit hard to explain, um, so I'm going to use a, a demonstration. I do, I do this in my videos, I think. I can't remember. I know I do it when I teach, but um, for, the, for the listening audience who isn't on videos, um, I have in my hand four Expo dry erase markers, and I'm just holding them in the palm of my hand, and I'm kind of rolling them around. They're not falling anywhere, but they're, they're just rolling around. I'm holding them loosely. So if, if we assume that these markers are representative uh, uh, metaphorically of my ideas, my beliefs, 
then if I'm holding my beliefs loosely, what happens is somebody can come along and say, hey, Jake, I don't think the blue marker is great. And, I, and we can pull blue marker out and we can talk about blue marker and all its merits and detriments and whatnot. And I don't have an emotional response to that because my ideas are not me. My beliefs are not me. And then I could say, well, thanks for your feedback, Carrie, because <laughs> you're the one I'm talking to. Um, but I still like Blue Marker, and it's good for me, and it serves me in this season of my life or whatever. And I put it back in my belief system, and, and I move on with life. So I can be very passionate about Blue Marker, and I can also be very non-attached in order to examine it further. Oftentimes, upon examination, we end up convicting ourselves even further to our beliefs. Not all the time. Sometimes we abandon them, but but for our purposes, we'll just assume that that's the case. All right, so... Now, if you're listening and you don't have the video, imagine that I just wrapped my fingers around these four markers very tightly and, I, and I'm holding them close to my chest. And we'll, we'll assume that I no longer can separate who I am as a person from what I think or what I believe. Now, remember earlier I said uh, you don't necessarily have control over whether or not you feel something when the environment sparks something in your brain. So if you're walking across you know, a, a hiking trail and you, there's a snake on your path, you're going to get startled, which is a, which is definitely an emotion. It's a surprise. And then depending on how you interpret that snake, you may experience fear. But the point is your brain is functioning, your limbic system is active and you don't have control over it until you recognize what's going on. Then you have control over it and you can go, oh, it's just a garter snake. I don't have to be afraid or oh, it's a rattlesnake. I should back up slowly. Okay. Your beliefs you have control over, always, always, always. Your ideas, your thoughts, your opinions, your interpretations, your perceptions, those you absolutely have control over. The degree to which you have control over them depends on the degree to which you've analyzed your own self and how you view the world. So these markers in my hand now, I've clutched them very closely to my chest, and we'll pretend that I've conflated what I believe with who I am. Now what happens is when Carrie questions blue marker, I get a limbic defensive response, probably out of fear, that says, look out, Jake, you're under attack. Now, I'm not actually under attack. It's just my ideas that are being questioned. But because I can't separate who I am from what I think, I have an emotionally defensive response to the apparent attack on self. It's not self. It's just blue marker. And we'll say blue marker is baseball. I love baseball. I've played it my whole life. I literally just hung up my cleats at 43 years old because my body hurts. But like, if somebody came along and said, baseball sucks, it's the stupidest thing ever, I would be able to say with my non-attached beliefs, I go, that's fine. That's like Big Lebowski. It's like, just your opinion, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it is. It's somebody else's opinion. Now, here's the key. People who haven't examined their beliefs usually are hanging on to somebody else's beliefs that were just yes. introduced and pushed in over time. And if they haven't examined them and they're not holding them loosely, they hold them very, very tightly. And then when those beliefs get challenged, the, the individual becomes defensive. But the crazy thing is they're defending somebody else's thoughts. Yes. It's, like, it's like it's not even your own, man. Because if it's your own, you don't have to be defensive. Uh, I, I follow Jesus as a practice. Um, I'm pretty transparent about that. I'm not, you know, I'm not a big giant evangelical trying to beat people about the head and shoulders with my faith. Um, but I, I follow Jesus. I try to do the best I can and uh, being a Christian. And if somebody said, you know, and I see this all the time, uh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. Jesus is stupid. He's not the son of God. I mean, I got Jewish friends who don't even believe that he's the Messiah. That's fine. 
I'm not offended by that. I don't have to take personal offense because I'm secure in my beliefs. Correct. And here's where, where it all spun off, right? This is the this is the origin of the question. What is it with the woke ideology that makes people so defensive, anxious, angry all the time? It's because the beliefs don't come from anywhere. They're not anchored in any doctrine or scripture. Uh, there's nothing you can point to with any sort of confidence that says, this is the origin of why I believe what I believe. Now, my favorite word in counseling is intentionality. If you know why you do what you do, doobie dooby doo. Um, if you know why you do what you do, you can, with a pretty high degree of confidence, assess the outcome before it even happens. You have intentionality behind your gestures, your words, your clothing that you put on, whether or not you want to go to work that day. If you have intentionality, you can articulate that upon examination. And we're, we're really big on this too, because I, I train all my students and my, my interns is like, if the, if the CNN cameras are in, the, in your office, every single time you have a session, somebody gets an opportunity to ask, why did you ask that of that 17 year old? Why did you ask that of that divorcee? What was your intent behind that reflection? And you should be able to say, well, because I wanted her to become more aware of her sadness as uh, related to the divorce uh, for the purposes of finding peace. I wanted the 17-year-old to have uh, better insight as to why he's arguing with his parents, et cetera, et cetera, right? We should be able to articulate this stuff. The problem with woke ideology is you can't articulate any of it. It just feels like it's a good idea. And the feelings are not something you can control. So the, the message there to your brain is, I can't control it. It's just what I feel. But it turns out it's not a feeling. It's a belief. And yeah. you can control the belief. You can change it. I can change my mind all the time. Um, and and so we, we end up inadvertently handcuffing ourselves to being able to do anything about our beliefs when we can. We can be in charge of our beliefs. Like this room is the wrong color. Um, that's, a, that's an idea. It's not I feel like the room is the wrong color. It's not a feeling. It's not one of Izzard's 10. It's not a physiological feeling like hunger or fatigue, um, hot or cold. It's an idea. And if I hold loosely my ideas... An interior designer can come in and say, actually, Jake, this room is the right color because the curtains match the drapes or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mark matches the drapes. Um, and then I could go, oh, okay, cool. I entertain that idea. I still don't like it. Okay, I don't like the colors. It's very different than I feel like it's the wrong color. So, again, I could go on and on, but I think that summarizes. So, uh, thank you. I was getting very excited when you're talking because do you know what it's like when you arrive at your own opinion about something and then later you hear someone validating that it's it, it was that feel like yes i arrived at this observation when i was leaving social justice i started writing essays about it trying to understand it better and also to help my friends who were in social justice understand what was going on with me because they were very concerned <laughs> i had yeah. an intervention um <laughs> but <laughs> But one of the things that I think it might have been Jordan Peterson, uh, I heard him talking about the purpose of conversation is not to win. It's the purpose of conversation is for it's an opportunity for each person to listen, truly understand the other person, and then walk away with either your opinion being made stronger or having your opinion discarded or changing it slightly. And, and so that really got me thinking a lot about the way in which we use conversation in the social justice world, which is not as a tool for better understanding 
and improving our ideas and discarding bad ones. We don't use it that way. It's social justice people use it merely as a tool to win. Yep. It's and um, and so one of the things that I noticed exactly what you're saying is that a lot of people in social justice they they go straight to the personal attacks when you're having a conversation saying I disagree with you on this I don't believe racism is defined as prejudice plus power you know, like I don't think it's dependent on the person's race whether or not they can be racist or have racism directed at them they will oftentimes in my experience react as if yeah. you've personally Spoken attacked them white guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they will come back with a personal attack because they feel personally attacked because of what you said, their ideas have become their identity and they don't see the difference. If you're attacking their ideas, they feel like you're attacking them. It's, it's the same thing that we encounter when people go through life transitions like retirement, for example. I just did a podcast with a, a wonderful organization called Major League University. If, uh, if anybody's got kids who play baseball, um, Major League University's whole goal is to to combine the uh the mental aspect and and by extension the mental health aspect of the game of baseball with the physical and so on that podcast we were talking about what happens when people who have grown up playing baseball their whole life think of it as a career maybe even get a cup of coffee in the minor leagues maybe even hit the major leagues but then injury derails them or they get designated for assignment and they don't have a career anymore it's like how do you leave what has apparently been your identity for so long and embrace a new identity and my whole goal here in talking to people about this is your job is not your identity and it's you know bob the accountant is bob the accountant and he's known for as bob the accountant throughout the community for 35 years and then it's like he approaches retirement he's like i don't know quote unquote what is that quote I don't know who I am, right? Without my fill in the blank practice, without my rodeo, without my accountancy practice, without my baseball, without my mental health practice. I own a mental health practice. I'm trying to work myself out of a job. I like to believe that I'm confident and humble enough to let this go if everybody in the community simultaneously heals and I'll go do something else. I'd still have a lease payment because I contracted. <laughs> They're like, I'll fill the building with something else, right? A coffee bar, or a, I don't know, brewery or something um, to make ends meet. I want to work myself out of a job um, because it, this is not my identity. Therapist is not my identity. My yes. identity is so much deeper than that. Yes. But that is scary to a lot of people. And scary is one of those emotions that we don't practice as a culture. We don't get it in any curriculum. That's why I'm big on emotional functions. I want to teach this stuff. So if you know that you're scared to leave your job, to move states, whatever it is that you've conflated as being your identity, you could face the fear, tolerate it, push through it, know that the world's not going to spin off its axis just because something changed. And then embrace the next step. And, and that's, the, that's the hope that we bring in something like counseling and psychotherapy is we say, nah, you're, you're deeper than you realize. There's so much more to you. And I think, unfortunately, ideologues, and they're not all woke people. There's right. lots of ideologues who have ideologies about things. Their identity is the ideology. Therefore, if you examine the ideology or the beliefs behind it or the reasons or the rationale, they freak out because they can't separate what they think from who they are. And if, if you question that it threatens and it's a real actual like physiological response to threat, it threatens their whole world. It's like, who am I? If, the, if I don't have this thing, it's like, well, I don't know. You, you didn't come out of the womb with that belief. So probably something else, something deeper. 
But again, it's terrifying to look beyond the surface. So especially if you haven't practiced it. I think a lot of this goes back to, um, we have a crisis of identity, I think, happening. Yeah. There's a lot of different kinds of crisis, crises happening. But one of them is, you know, this social justice ideology is sort of like Marxism mutated. And whereas Marxism said the best way to look at the world is as this struggle for wealth among class groups. And social justice says, no, it, the best way to look at it is a, as a struggle for power mm. among identity groups. And so identity and power are both right at the core of, of this belief system. And what is your identity if you start to fall in with this, this system of belief? Your identity is the ideology itself. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it's also all of those identity groups that you're in. And, yeah. and they, they hold so tightly to those things being of utmost importance, it, what, what your race is, what your gender is, your sexuality, if you're fat or not, if you have mental health problems or not. They make all of these things categories of identity. What would you... What kind of questions would you suggest for people who we, we I hear a lot from parents who have college age kids who are starting to come home and and speak some of this ideology. What kind of questions would you suggest asking someone who seems to have be making their belief system their identity? Oh, it's it's so unique. I, and I don't want to make this sound like a cop out, but it, it, it really is unique mm-hmm. to the individual. It's really hard to give a general scripted um, piece of piece of feedback on this that that's that's universally applicable. Um, but if you're confident in what you're asking, because you got you got to have follow up questions, because because the it's almost a programming. When somebody's a, becoming an ideologue, all they know are talking points, and the talking points are designed to elicit an emotion, which puts the questioner on their heels. And usually that emotion is fear or shame or sadness because they don't know the answer. And so they're embarrassed. And if you get a really boorish person who's, you know, purposely bludgeoning you and not engaging in good faith in the debate, it can be even worse. So you have to know your stuff really well, but you can't argue the topic, if that makes sense. You can't argue the surface level talking points. Um, I have some experience with this because I do guns and mental health stuff, which is apparently two cultures that uh, can't be cooperative. Well, it turns out they can, and I'm walking evidence of it. I'm a firearms owning clinician. And so what I see frequently from the quote unquote both sides is talking points. The gun owners retreat to talking points and they're threatened because that's their identity and they've built this idea up in their heads that I can't go see a mental health practitioner because you're going to pick up the bat phone to the government and tattle on me and take my guns. Turns out that's not true. I don't have a bat phone. There's lots of legal and ethical protections against that. But the, the belief still exists and certain people just can't hear it. So rather than debating the, the, the topic, I go to, well, where do you get that idea? And make them answer. Where do they get the idea? Maybe, uh, Ibram X. Kendi or something. It's like, all right, where did he get it? Where, Where's the origin here? Because here's the key. If you know postmodernism really well, you know that it, it stands for literally nothing. <laughs> it wants to deconstruct, right? Which deconstruction is fine as long as you reconstruct and have something afterward. 
Um, it's good to know where things come from. It's good to examine. It's good to deconstruct. But at the end, you better be holding on to something. Because if you're, as Jordan Peterson would say, unmoored or unanchored, uh, that's treacherous. Uh, you're, you're bound to get tossed about by waves that are stronger than your, your belief system if you're unanchored. So you want to ask, where does this come from? And it speaks to the intentionality that I mentioned earlier. If you know why you believe what you believe, and you can be a, an ideological purist, but emotionally non-attached, there's no debate. It's fine. You're at peace. I, I I don't have to argue with somebody who's not emotional about their position. They're just like, yeah, I, I believe in, you know, ending all racism. It's like, cool. How are you going to do that? I don't know. A series of events and you know, rallies and conversations and educate. Okay, cool. Uh, where, how do you see the best way of doing that? Oh, K-12 education. We want to teach people to be anti-racist. All right. You know, like if they're calm and tranquil about it, there's nothing to debate because they're they're at peace. They know really well what they believe and they're they're not attached. Okay, there's nothing to debate there. I think your question is more about the people who come home, you know, a, a you know, high fluttering anxious person who is spouting talking points that have no root in anything. And we're worried that this person's having their actual foundation eroded. And that's really bad because if you have your actual foundation eroded, what you're going to end up doing is jumping from group to group to group to ideology to ideology to ideology ideology that's really hard to say three times fast yeah. um looking for an identity and it turns out none of those are going to be identities because none of them are rooted in anything so the questions you want to ask are things like where does that come from why do you believe what you believe and not in an attacking way but be aware that the word why does elicit a defense response so in our profession we try to train our clinicians not to ask why we ask things like um, how'd you come about that? Or where does that originate? Not why, right? Unless you want to purposely make the person defensive, which sometimes is useful and therapeutic. Um, but just understand that questioning it unto itself will elicit a defensive response. Then you have to circumvent that de defense, that fight or flight um, with something else. Um, compassion usually works. Empathy works. Trying to Trying to understand with humility and curiosity works really well. Like explain to me why this is important you know, daughter of mine who's 19 and home fresh from college. Um, explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. Don't condescend me like you're better than me because you just found this out, but explain it to me. Um, pretend like you're at the head of a classroom and you have to give a three-hour lecture. And that's what I, I tell my, my clinicians, actually. I said, pick pick an, pick a, an intervention strategy, a, a therapeutic modality like CBT or something, and before you branch out to anything else, know it so well that you could teach a three-hour course on it. If somebody comes home with anti-racist uh, belief system and says, mom and dad, you guys are both, you know, off your rockers because you don't believe what I believe. Okay. All right, cool. I'll sit down. And if you can teach a three hour course to me on this, then I'll, then I'll start listening because it means you know it so well that it's probably worth listening to. But I don't know anybody can give three hours on on anti-racist, uh, you know, <laughs> DEI. No, not unless they're making a lot of money. <laughs> then, then, it's, then it's just fluff and it won't be up for scrutiny anyway. Robin D'Angelo could probably do three hours. <laughs> her own books. Yeah. So this this is all this is all really interesting to me. You mentioned programming, and this show is called Deprogramming, and that is the way I view it. I, I I think a lot of people get programmed into my old belief system and other ideologies if they don't have some some kind of belief system there that that is pre-existing or as you said that existing belief system gets chipped away and then it's replaced with this um 
I wonder if you would mind talking about something God related with me, not in your professional capacity, just as a human, Jake. I I have a question. <laughs> yes. Like, okay. Well, I didn't know if like as a as a therapist, maybe you wouldn't want to talk about it. But I here's something I've been well, thinking about. There's, okay. There's some programming there I want to I want to deconstruct. Okay. Okay. Let me flip this around on you, and I'm not I'm not being pedantic. I swear. Um, okay. Why would you think that there would be a separation? I guess because I'm used to being in an environment the past few years where I was made to separate part of my beliefs in God from, from what I was doing online. <laughs> Amazingly, we get taught the same stuff in school, in, in counselor school. It's, it's staggering to me, the double speak that comes out of our professor's mouths when they say, um, you can, you can have this Carl Jung guy who talks about conscious and unconscious function of the psyche. And the psyche is like, Greek for soul, because the goddess Psyche was said to be Greek, you know, the the uh, the goddess of the human soul, um, which is totally mythological, totally a form of religion. But you're not allowed to talk about God in therapy unless the, the client, I don't like the word client, I say patient, but mm -hmm. unless the patient him or herself brings it up, then you can talk about it. But it's like, wait, so I can offer to teach conscious and unconscious functioning, which is not a, it's a construct, right? It's like we assume that's true, but there's no proof behind it. But I'm not allowed to introduce spirituality as a as a mechanism by which this person could alleviate their distress. It's like it's so bizarre, and that's the postmodernism. It makes you go crazy. And then I've I've had conversations with people fresh out of grad school for I don't know how long have I been in this now? Twelve years. Um, and it's like clockwork. Everyone was like, I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about that. And it doesn't matter what school they went to. It's everybody. I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about that. I'm like, says who? What point to me in the ethics? This is why scripture and doctrine matter. Like our scripture could be the ethical codes or doctrine, right? Point to it in black and white. Something we all agree upon before we enter into the profession. Where is it in law? Where is it in ethic? Where is it in your books? It's not. It's just some dude's idea who's, who's you know, sitting in the front of the classroom uh, twirling his mustache or whatever, uh, saying you're not allowed to do this and you are allowed to do this. And, um, it, it's, it's horrible. Jung had a word for this it's called introjects. Introjects are unquestioned beliefs or assumptions. It's not Is an it? interject, uh, intro I N T R O jacked. So it's not an interjection when you jump into somebody else's conversation, but it's an introjection and meaning a belief or an assumption that was pushed into you, uh, over time from some voice of authority that you then just took on. It, it creates your worldview. Um, so we get introjected by our professors to have certain beliefs like social workers are not to be trusted and psychologists don't know what they're doing with regard to family systems. And it's like, I literally got taught this stuff. Um, if you see your patients in public, turn your cart and go down the other aisle at the grocery <laughs> store because you're not supposed to be interacting with them. It's like, right. oh my God, and we wonder why people stigmatize this profession. That stuff needs to be shaken off. One of those is don't talk about religion in session. It's like, I don't know, man. Religion's brought a lot of help and healing to a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> yes, I would yes. love to talk about that. This is refre very refreshing for me. I'm sorry. You're making me emotional. Um, <laughs> I, <clears throat> I was going to ask you, I, for a while since I left, so I started leaving social justice in 2016, 2017. And okay. those 20 years I was in it, I was... I would, I probably, I called myself an agnostic back then, 
But I also, I can look back and honestly say I was also very prejudiced and it, towards Christians, very anti-Christian, and uh, had been somewhat inoculated to Christianity <laughs> as like, I know what that is and it's bad and no. That's and, really honest with you, by the way. Thanks yeah, for sharing that. Well, yeah, it's true. I think a lot of people in our world are inoculated against it and have a lot of stereotypes about what it is and also look look to con artists who uh, people I now think of as frauds who, who use Christianity, like there's con artists in any belief system, but the people who use it to gain power, money, and, you know, success, fame or whatever, mm -hmm. look at those people as the representation of what it is. And that's a shame because those people I've come to realize are not a good representation of Christ. <laughs> but there, well, uh, and I'll yeah. tell you just if I could birdwalk that for a minute. Yeah. Same thing is going on in psychotherapy right now. And there's some really good th people who are punching up against it. Um, Sarah is, is good. Jonathan oh, Shedler's good. Um, but, but what's happened is because of what I mentioned about how students in grad school get interjected to think that we have to hide in the shadows as a profession, over the last 40 years or whatever, what that's left is a gaping void that nobody's filling until the last two years when these um, online Insta therapy agencies proliferated. So you got Talkspace and Good Therapy and BetterHelp and the, the list goes on. And they all walked right into that gap and said, here's what psychotherapy is. And it's wrong. That, that That's that 30 minutes at a time, texting your clinician four time zones away is not good ethical counseling. It's just not. Um, and there's, I could go on and on about why it's not, but believe me, I have reasons and I can cite them if you want, but yeah. ethically, legally, um, it, theoretically it's, it's not, but guess what? Now everybody thinks psychotherapy consists of instant gratification. It's like, yeah. man, you didn't get here overnight with your distresses. It's not going to get undone a half hour at a time online. Um, yeah. it could. I mean, if you're, if you're really, I, I, I like to think I'm pretty good at my job. I can move people pretty quickly by the questions I ask because they're very pointed and specific and intentional. But I also know that I don't represent my profession very adequately. Like mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of people out there who are just lazy diagnosticians. They're lazy counselors. They pick low hanging fruit. Um, and I don't know how many of those are represented in those instant therapy places. But the message that's being sent to broader society is, cure your problems instantly through this medium that we are offering you. And, um, and that's, that's not it. Uh, so we have a job to do to, to go back and, and push back against that now and say, that's not what counseling is. It needs to be all these other things, much more robust, deep. It's got to have a treatment plan, you know, all the, all the things. Um, so it, it, it's, it, it happens everywhere and it's happening in my profession now. And unfortunately I sound like a, you know, daft old man screaming into the wind, you know, with his fist in the air, uh, punching up against the orthodoxy because I see the harm that it's causing people. I wouldn't care if people were getting helped, but they're not getting helped. We're getting worse. Yeah. There's an yeah. old, there's a book that came out a while back called like we've had psychiatry for a hundred years and people are only getting worse, something like that. And I can't remember what it's yeah. about, but it's like this. Well, Statement rings true. So anyway, back to your question. Uh, well, before I ask the question, though, I was going to say, it seems to me also that a lot of social justice is making its way into the profession just oh, as an outsider looking at it. Yeah. yeah. So, well, uh, so on that topic, yes, affirming care is coming our way and that's very, very dangerous. 
Um, and I put affirming in quotes because uh, you can't see it on the air, but affirming care. Um, the first thing I think most people think of when you say affirming is you go transgender, right? Um, but that's not where it stops. The problem is somebody comes into your office under an affirming care law, which have made their way into the legislatures of California and New York so far. I don't know if they've gotten passed, <clears throat> excuse me, but they're at least being entertained. That basically says the practitioner, me, the one who holds the license from the state, the same state that's now going to do this next thing, um, is no longer allowed to uh, diagnose or treat as we see fit from our education experience and training. We have to simply accept or i.e. affirm the person coming in stating what their problem is. Wow. So this has happened. This has been happening for years and we have to fight back against the parents who say, my kid is ADHD, treat him. It's like your kid is not ADHD. Your kid may have ADHD, but I will be doing the diagnosing, not you and not WebMD and not TikTok and certainly not your next door neighbor whose kid also had ADHD or whatever. Right. His peer group. So we've been pushing that. We've been pushing against that for, for a while now, but now it's, it's threatening to become legislated where I'm not allowed to d debate the person's stated problem through my own training, education, and experience. I just have to affirm it because apparently to, to dare to suggest otherwise is going to, I don't know, hurt the fifis of the person coming in the room. It's like, um, you sought me out for my experience and my license and you're paying me for this, but you're going to tell me that I'm wrong. Can you even imagine doing that with a medical doctor going in and going, doc, my arm hurts. And the doctor goes, yep, looks like you got a compound fracture. I can see the bone protruding from your skin. Nope, that's not it. What I really need is an exercise band. I think I just need to strengthen the muscles. And the doctor's like, I'm not going to give you an exercise band. I have to set your bone. And they're like, nope, <laughs> that's no, not. Here's what I. But that's where this thing is headed. It with, sounds like I want to debate you. Well, it sounds like they're take they're mistaking. There's a big difference between what you were talking about earlier, when someone's in an extreme emotional state, validating that emotion, letting them know you hear it. There's a difference between that and validating their diagnosis and saying, yeah, well, agreement that, or right? affirming, affirming it and saying, yes, that's what you have. Yeah. Validation and agreement are not the same thing. I can validate you. I, I validated, you know, convicted felons who have done horrible, despicable things and said, I get why you did what you did. I get it. I understand it. I understand the dynamics that went through your life that brought you to the place where you did the horrible thing that now puts you in front of me. I get it. And you still have to pay your penance. You still have to do your time. And, and now what we get to do is rehabilitate you. So you can become a productive member of society instead of spending your life behind bars. Like that's, that's cool. I can have that conversation. Both things can be true at the same time. I can validate the, the anger and the rage that you had growing up and say, you don't get to hurt people anymore. Right. I can do both. Um, but this is a, this is a one way direction though, with this thing. It's like, you know, if I come in and I tell you that I'm anxious, I have anxiety, treat my anxiety, I go, no, actually you got borderline personality disorder and here's all the reasons why. And here's the diagnostic criteria. And here's what you, based on your own words, nope, I don't want to have BPD. Yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> there's the door because I'm not going to treat you inadequately with a, with an inaccurate treatment plan that, that causes harm. And I took yeah. an oath not to cause harm. Not to cause so, harm. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm laughing. I have to laugh at some of this stuff because it's so it's ridiculous and ridiculous. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and so here's the point. People are swallowing it wholesale. 
right? Yeah. That's that's the thing. It's like students just come out and, they, and their professors tell them one thing and their supervisors tell them the same thing. And then they go, yep, go to affirming care, affirming care. I don't, uh, social justice. It's like, that's not just. And I don't, I don't, another, I say this too, like, I don't understand the adjective justice things. Like, I understand it for, un, like, putting things in their proper place, I suppose. Like, criminal justice belongs in the courts. You take... Mm crimes and you work justice through that and like social justice and economic justice and environmental justice. It's like there's a non-exhaustive list of adjectives we could put in front of justice. Why don't we just say justice, doing justice, do the right thing. That's a Make great it, point. You know. And I've thought about this before. I think it's because when they qualify it, they're, they're acknowledging the fact that it's not justice. It's like, they also, I don't know if you've encountered this, but social justice, people talk about radical kindness, which is not kind at all. Have no. you heard this? Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in, in uh, dialectical behavior therapy, there's something called radical acceptance. And it's like, what well, it makes it radical if you're just accepting somebody where they are? doesn't <laughs> right. matter. Because, right? well, and I'll tell you where it comes from. It, it's, it's this idea that sins are hierarchical. It's mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, Hammurabi first did that. And now we still have it in our justice system today. It's like murder is worse than stealing a pack of gum. Um, but if we go to the all sins are equal in the eyes of God type of view. When I look at your symptoms as a mentally ill person, I don't care whether it's low level anxiety that keeps you up at night or full blown psychosis or drug addiction or violence. All symptoms are the same. They're just symptoms. What's the problem? The problem is something else that probably doesn't have a diagnostic code attached to it. Like doesn't feel good about oneself. Doesn't know where one is going in life. Lifetime of trauma history that hasn't been processed, you know, something like that, that doesn't have a code. Anxiety has a code. Conduct disorder has a code. I can bill insurance for that, but those are all just surface level symptoms. I don't, I'm not interested in treating. So the social justice people are like, you know, and the, and the DBT people are like, well, I, this person's done really, really bad things. So it needs extra acceptance. It's like, no, it just needs you to be loving. Like it's, yeah. we don't need to scale this. Like, because then it becomes a competition for virtue. It's like, how much more radical can you be? <laughs> Superlative acceptance. Extreme like, radical. Infinity plus one. <laughs> like, no, man, just, just be cool. <laughs> just do acceptance. Yeah. That works. Yeah. That works. Okay. So to get back to my God question, this, fun little so tangent. this is something I've been thinking about recently. So for a while after I came out of social justice, so I, I'm a Christian now, I still call myself a pretty new believer. I don't know. I'll probably always call myself a new believer because I feel like I'm still learning so much. And you, we should all be so uncertain and humble. Uh, well, I only also, I don't want to be, I'm, I want people to hold me up as like Christian YouTuber. And then, you know, I just want to, I, I just want to have a, I just want to talk about things that interest me. And yes, I'm also a Christian. Careful so, before you know it, people are going to start following you. <laughs> yeah, Won't become but, a leader too fast. Oh no! You haven't so, gone through the orthodoxical rubber stamping. Yeah, I don't. I don't want any of that. I had. I had a friend who, when I first started, God was like pulling me back to him, and the way that he did it. There's a verse that I read at the time, which I've talked about before on my show, but it said. It's in the Bible a couple times. He says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will steer you back on the path. Mm. And that is what happened to me because I had, I was at the lowest point in my life. And that's when I started reckoning with my belief system with social justice. And that process took about, I mean, it took a, a year or two to fully come out of it. 
and really understand what it had been, what it, what it was versus what I thought it was that whole time. And it was really like tearing my whole house of belief to the ground, raising the whole house to the very foundation and then figuring out bit by bit, what do I actually believe versus what are these received opinions that you, you spoke of earlier that you, that you cling to tightly because they're part of the belief system. Mm -hmm. And that takes a while. And then after that, I started, I became just consumed with this question about God and about meaning and purpose and whether we have a soul or if we're just a physical body with a computer brain. And, and I didn't, I don't think we are. And so I started going to a spiritual center when I was still living in Los Angeles that that was the only church I would have gone to at that time. I was so prejudiced. It was like, okay, that's the way I'm, it, it's not nominational and it's Oprah's preacher and they, it's kind of got this uh, new age element to it as well and different, yeah. but, but I felt God there and I can't describe it any other way. And I was going there for a while and then um, I moved to Texas and went through, tried a lot of different kinds of churches and, but, but as I was growing and, and coming to understand how I view God and the best way to be in the world, and what are these things that I believe? And whoa, look, the Bible says a lot of these things. Wow, I should have paid attention yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like that weird? It sort of it was like a roadmap. And I could have avoided a lot of pain. And who knew? <laughs> who knew? But so I started thinking, though, that I guess it was the past few years, I was thinking, how do you keep people from falling into bad ideology like woke? And and I, I, I didn't believe that you needed a belief in God or higher power. I was like, well, I think that you could just have a system of ethics and, and then you could maybe, you know, just because I have a belief in God doesn't mean someone else needs one. Sure. But very recently I've started wondering if that's true. And, and so this is a roundabout way of asking, like, do you believe that we are human beings are designed to worship? Cause I'm just looking at the behavior of people. I think people, everyone I know worships something. And if that something is not higher than yourself, then there's no breaking mechanism for bad behavior. Because if you're worshiping your, like your own ability to reason or to figure out the best approach, you're ultimately worshiping yourself, which means you're going to make mistakes. Does that, I'm rambling, yeah. but what do you think No, about? no, no. You know, it's, that's a hundred percent accurate. I, as far as I'm concerned, um, I don't know if you heard, I know it's come up and I couldn't tell you which interview, but, um, come up multiple times at least three that i know of that were separate and distinct jordan peterson talked i mean he talks to a lot of people about a lot of things but this topic keeps surfacing and it's usually with the religious folks so i'm guessing maybe it was bishop Barron, and maybe it was dennis prager and adam carolla and maybe it was um somebody somebody else there's a I haven't seen any who, of those. Okay, well, and and I don't know. I mean, I, I consume so much content anymore. I, I I would struggle to cite the right reference, but but I do know that it was that this was discussed on his podcast for the first time when I heard it, and I was like, that's a really profound insight. And what they said was pretty much what you were saying, which is religion has always existed, and people need something bigger than themselves to worship. If they don't have religion that is anchored, and this is why anchoring is so important, like knowing from where you draw your beliefs, 
you're if you don't know where that is, you're going to cling to something that looks bigger than you, like an ideology. Um, my my twist on it is that I think that the a religious, like the angry atheists, um, that's a new thing where all they want to do is tear down, tear down, tear down, tear down. And for me, it's it's a little bit of a an analogy to bullying. Like the bullying 101 says kids bully other kids because they don't feel good about themselves, right? It's to tear down because they don't want to build themselves up. So it's easier to tear down than to build something. Um, and we all, we all pretty much understand that. And I think what, what wokistani ideology does is that it, um, it tears down because it's not actually constructing anything. And that's, that's it. It's just, you're tearing things down. So when you do that, what ends up happening is you cling to something. And you mentioned something earlier about the, the, the boxing up and the, the parsing out of, of individual, um, beliefs. When we do that, psychologically speaking, um, we carve out little pieces of ourselves and we say, I'm not this, I am this. I'm not that, I am this. And it creates a binary, which is unhealthy because binary worldview, meaning the black or the white, the either or, all or nothing, creates anxiety because reality is not binary. So when we're facing reality that's not binary, it's very gray, it's very dialectic, meaning both and. But our, our system in our heads has been compartmentalized such that all things look like they should fall into a binary. We get very, very anxious. We don't know why. All we know is we have to identify with something. But we're too busy destroying things and carving them out saying, I can't be that. And then what that does is mentally it says, everybody else who is that is a they and they are bad because I've decided they're bad because I've destroyed them. Okay, so now that we've got this going on in our heads, if we're destroying things and deconstructing and carving lines and whatnot, it leaves us very boxed in and very limited. And so I, I mentioned earlier that we're 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 pretty unlimited in our capacity to do things. Human beings are very very deep. If we go back to Carl Jung, Jung's idea of the human psyche, the soul, the the, the mind, if you will, is that it's limitless because it's divine. If we're divine creatures, because time plus matter plus chance doesn't make sense to anyone, and it never has across time. It's a very new belief system, and it's very, very small. Even though they have big bullhorns, I don't think that many people really believe this stuff. So most people across all of humanity have believed in something bigger than themselves. They've believed in the divine, whatever God looks like to them. It's bigger than them. It's rooted in something. It's in the stars. It's in the cosmos. It's in spirit. It's in something. Now we're carving that out and we're whittling it down and we're whittling it down so far that we don't have anything left. So yeah. of course it's going to breed anxiety because I don't know who I am because I'm so limited by what I've whittled out and I've othered everyone else and everything else that I'm left in this very, very little tiny box. Now here's the, here's the counterbalance. Intrinsically, I know that's not true because I see it with my own eyes. So it takes some real strong mental gymnastics to get to the point where I go, everything I know is true. Everything I see is true. And yet I'm going to deny that it exists, right? <laughs> like I see that person over there being happy following Jesus, but I've already decided that Jesus is bad for whatever reason. Therefore it can't be true. 
therefore I can't believe my lying eyes. Yeah. Makes a world very small. And of course that person's going to be anxious and angry, right? Of course. So yeah, I do think we need something to worship. I do believe that the Judeo-Christian God is the most researched and well uh, cited um, series of literature in, in all of time. Um, there are also other beliefs that have nothing to do with that, that bring people peace and, and sustenance. And that's fine too. Buddhism is very, very closely aligned with Christianity. If you start checking the boxes, a lot of the, a lot of the deeds and acts are, are really, really similar. Um, the difference of course is Jesus Christian relate, uh, religion versus all other religions is that all other religions had somebody who claimed to have spoken with God, if not many somebodies. Jesus is the only one who said, I am God. And I think that's what makes it really hard for people to touch is because it's too intimate. It's, it's too intimate. When the New Testament scriptures and Jesus's words and then all his teachings to the disciples say, everything I have, you also have, all you got to do is believe it requires a vulnerability that touches the face of God. And that's super scary for people who have whittled themselves down to say, God doesn't exist, or that's not for me, or I'm too broken. I can't come to the cross or whatever it is. And so it, re it requires a faith step that is simply quite overwhelming, which again, I'll go back to emotional functioning. If you know what fear is, if you know what shame is, you know how to reconcile those things, push through them, get to the other side. Then the next time you have that experience, you go, I know what this is. I can, I'm going to be okay if I face this. Then it makes the face step really quite easy. You go, all right, I believe it. I don't have to touch it or see it or quantify it. I just, I just believe and you can believe in anything. Um, and so far outside of some squawky people who are only interested in tearing down things and not constructing things, I haven't found any evidence for not God. I found a lot of evidence for God. I haven't found much evidence for not God. So yes. I don't know. Again, Thank you know, I talk a lot about this, but. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for, for just thinking about that with me. Cause I, I tend to get in these <clears throat> questions like several years ago when I got, I, I really wanted to know what my friends thought about, do we have a soul or not? And I'll stay on that question for a while until I think I've figured out the answer. So this one just keeps coming up for me. Yeah, I think, I think it's one of those things where you, you go with it until it's not useful anymore. And so far, I haven't found when it's not useful. You know, mm -hmm. like if we're, if we're just going to be pragmatic, like it's useful to believe in a soul. It's useful to believe that you're, you're deeper and greater than, than all that you've already known up to this point. Yeah. Um, it, it inspires hope and, and encouragement. If I can be, be better day by day, then why wouldn't I? Why would I, why would I want to limit myself? That's, that's confusing and, and, um, and disheartening. Right. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want discouragement. And also it's useful because if we're talking about pragmatic reasons, it's, there's something, once you've seen the benefit of some of the guidelines of the best way to live in the Bible, and you've seen that when you try and abide by those guidelines, wow, look, they work. <laughs> this yeah, is better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This so, yeah, is better. Yeah. yeah. It Yep. It bears fruit. And then, and then I think, I think that breaking me mechanism I was talking about is sort of, then, then it requires that trust and that faith and that vulnerability that you're talking about when there's a guideline or rule that you don't want to obey. And if you didn't have that belief, you could justify not obeying it. Yeah. But, Cause you are but, your own God at that point. 
Right. But because you've got this belief in something higher, it's like, well, I don't want to do that, but I recognize God wants me to, so I'm going to try. It's accountability, really. I mean, if we strip out the religious aspect, we take it to a profession. Um, Most professions have rules and ethics, uh, if not both. So those are bigger than you. So if you want to break one, you go, "Mm, is this worth it to me? And then what you're doing, essentially, when you break the ethic, you say, I know better than the people who put the ethics in place, including all of the profession that's agreed to it. It's like, that's a, that's a hell of a lot of arrogance. That's, that's virgin on cluster B stuff there. When you, when you can self-justify why you're breaking the mutually agreed upon ethical code. Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Yes. Um, well, I just Jake, realized it's 11 o'clock. And I yes. I've got to let you go. Thank yeah. you so much for your time, your insight. Yeah. I could talk to you for much longer. I really enjoyed do it. it. Again. I would love to do it again. Can you just tell people, I'll make sure this is in the description of the video, but tell people where they can find out more about you online or follow you if they're interested. Yeah. uh, So Twitter is how we met. um, And I'm at Jake Wisk, J-A-K-E-W-I-S-K on Twitter. Um, Zephyrwellness.org is my business. And we do counseling in Northern Nevada and other places. Um, And I want to give a plug for uh, the two podcasts I do, one is called Noggin Notes. I've been doing that for about five years now. Um, and I'm very proud of Noggin Notes because it's truly international. When we started, uh, it started of a, a guy who's from South Africa, now lives in Cambodia. And so it got me in touch with a lot of p- people all over the world, which was super neat. But now there's two other Noggin Notes, Noggin Notes Cambodia and Noggin Notes Africa. And those are really cool to listen to if you want to edify yourself about things going on around the world with regard to mental health. And the second one is called Guns and Mental Health. It's by an organization called Walk the Talk America. I'm very proud to serve on the board of. And uh, we're trying to bring together the cultures of firearms owners and mental health practitioners. Uh, ultimately, it's a, it's a suicide prevention organization at its core, uh, you know, targeting firearm suicide, but also uh, broadly just getting people introduced to the counseling world who previously may have been suspicious of it. So uh, Walk the Talk America, you can go to WTTA, walkthetalkamerica.org. And if you go there, you can take a free and anonymous mental health screening, which uh, everybody likes free and anonymous is kind of nice too. So take free and anonymous mental health screening at walkthetalkamerica.org. And uh, I'll see everybody later, I'm sure. Thank you so much. That The guns and mental health thing sounds so interesting. I actually made a note earlier. I was going to tell you, you should do a show called Guns, God, and Mental Health. But you've uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> we had like four straight podcasts where that topic came up. And I joked with Mike Studini, who's the founder of the organization and my co-host. I said, we should change this to <laughs> Guns, God, and Mental Health. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a country song, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. yeah. You'd see, uh, uh, you know, like Blake Shelton singing it or... Uh, or maybe uh, you know, who, who's the who's the guy who was the front man for Stained? Love his stuff too. Anyway, oh, I they, don't remember. Yeah, well, anyway. thank you so much, Jake. Everybody, go check him out online. And thank you for being with us today, guys. Thanks See for you having in the next me, video. Cool. Take care. Bye. Okay.